Father in heaven, Lord, we sing of your goodness and we speak of your goodness. We recognize it, Father, but we can't fathom it. Lord, we even with our best of intentions, we, we struggle, God, to understand what it is that you did for us. We can't imagine what it might, must have been life for your, like for your holy son to leave perfect fellowship with you in heaven, to lay aside the power and control, the holiness and greatness that came with his place as your only son, to be born into a peasant family and to grow up a nondescript and forgotten childhood, to emerge and become a brilliant teacher and a powerful leader, but ultimately to become our sacrifice. Lord, we know of your goodness because you tell us of your goodness. Father, I just pray that that knowledge might motivate us to become good people ourselves. Not good in our own works or good in our own hearts and thoughts, but good in the substance and the quantity of our lives. Lord, help us to be the kind of people that are your hands and your feet in this broken world. Help us to be the kind of people that live lives that are bright lights in the darkness that are rays of hope for those who are hopeless Lord you have you have brought many of us from difficult and broken situations Lord and you've given us a brand new lease on life and Father we thank you for that help us never to become arrogant or complacent in that gift help us Lord to be motivated to share what it is you've done with us with so many other people that need to know that just ask you to be with us today Lord as we open your word just pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to what it has to say to us and that, God, we might not just leave here today encouraged, but we might leave here today changed by you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What happened just about this time of year, 20-some years ago, I guess now, We'd just uh, gone down to Iowa to my mom and dad's house to visit. We had gone down to a gathering, kind of a rally sort of deal, like what Winterfest or Barnabas would be in central Iowa. And uh, we, were, we were getting ready to head back home to northern Minnesota. And there, there's, this, there's this thing that happens sometimes this time of year. You, you just never really know what the weather's going to be like in February. But we woke up that morning, and it was absolutely beautiful morning. The, the, the sky was clear, the, the, the sun was brilliant and bright, and as we're making our way early that morning through, the, through the, the narrow roads that lead to the interstate, it seemed like the road surfaces were absolutely fine. We get a little bit north of Des Moines, Iowa, and, and if you've ever been in northern Iowa, if you've ever driven through there, it is incredibly flat. It's just this one big glacial till. I mean, it just scraped everything off. And you can see literally probably 20 or 30 miles on either sides of the interstate. There's not trees. There's only fence posts and telephone poles. That's it. And it was one of the last hills as we were coming out of South Iowa into Northern Iowa and getting out on the plains there that a very curious thing happened. We're driving along in our little 2000, whatever it was, 1998 Chevy Astro van. You guys remember those, right? We're, we're, we're just tooling along. It's just Michelle and I. We're cutting up and singing to the radio because we do that. It's a little scary, I know, but there was no one in the van with us. And uh, we come up over this rise, and I was completely relaxed. 
Um, it was a normal day. The road surface looked dry. It hadn't snowed in weeks. And as I came up over the top of this hill, literally on either side of the interstate, as far as my eye could see, it looked like a parking lot. There were semi-trucks flipped over, cars stacked on either sides of the interstate. Michelle said, I wonder what happened here last night. And about that moment, as the driver of the vehicle, I decide it's time to take a traction test. Now, you guys don't worry about that in South Louisiana, but if you go to northern Iowa or you go into the north, you better know about how to deal with black ice. It looks like the regular road surface. But the problem is, is that it is absolutely a skating rink. I'm just about to tap on my brakes just to see what the, what the road surface condition is like when I recognize that without my input, my van is turning sideways in the interstate going 60, 70 miles an hour. I, I jogged the wheel just ever so little because I knew a little dirt track experience, you steer into the skid, right? So I turned my wheel ever so little. I know I'm in trouble at this point. I'm looking at either side of the interstate full of vehicles that we would run into. And as I jog my wheel, the car slowly, as just you might imagine, on ice, slides back the other way. And for the next seemed like eternity. It was this joggle of me trying to slowly ease my van to keep it on the middle of the road. I, I can't explain to you how slick it was except to say that when I would barely lay my foot on the accelerator pedal to take off, my tires would lose traction. I mean, it was just unbelievably slick. It was a couple of years later that somebody came out. I'm trying to think of her name, but I'm terrible with names. She came out with this song. You guys know it. Jesus take the wheel, right? You guys know that song? Yeah, we know that. Here's the problem with that. It's an awesome song. And every time I get on, on slick roads or I'm skidding somewhere when I came up on something in, 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 in rainy weather, I always think of Jesus take the wheel. But here's the problem. You and I both know that. It is a beautiful song. And it is a wonderful bit of, of, of dreaming. But I have yet to know Jesus jumping in somebody's vehicle and taking the steering wheel. You can pray to the Lord, Lord, help me. And there is no question in my mind today that God was with me in that moment while I'm trying to slow down a hurling little minivan down the interstate on a skating rink. There's no question in my mind that God was with me. But the thing is, is that I still had my hands on the wheel. I was the one trying to regain control. And some of us this morning are in church and we know exactly what that feels like. Maybe not, the, maybe not the black ice business and the slick roads in northern Iowa, but we know exactly what it's like to see our lives in a full-on skid and to recognize that we need to regain control. And while the perfect solution to that every time is to call out to God and say, God, save me, that is a great solution. God seldom comes down and reaches in and grabs a hold of the steering wheel of our life. He actually works with us. And this morning, we're going to talk about how we regain or take control of our lives. Truth is that there's some of us in this room this morning that our lives are out of control. And I want you to know if your life is out of control, that is because you have relinquished the control of your life to someone else. 
We're going to build on this just in a moment, but if you were here last week, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit about how extraordinarily powerful our minds are. And we, 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 said that, we said that the Bible, from front cover to back, reminds us of, of the importance of, of recognizing the thought processes that we have because those thought processes end up becoming the things that we do, the things that we think about or the things that we do. And if you were here, you know that we took a look at a passage of Scripture from Luke, the ninth chapter, and it's kind of our theme verse, if you will, for the next couple weeks. This is that passage in the middle of Luke where Jesus begins to kind of Take his slow walk to Jerusalem, a walk that will end up with Jesus hanging on the cross for our forgiveness, but a walk that he will not make alone. In fact, he will make that walk with 12 other guys, 12 other guys that are his disciples who have lived and worked and seen miracles and themselves perform miracles in this broken world, 12 guys that you would hope would form with Jesus a team that would be invincible, but if you know the story, you know that that in fact Jesus was the only one that would arrive and still be on mission. Every single one of those 12 guys, in one form or another, were derailed on their way to Jerusalem. Every single one of those guys failed to be there at Jesus' moment of greatest need. Mark, or Luke, rather, the ninth chapter, verses 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. But Jesus would be the only one that would be successful. As you read through the rest of that chapter, you're going to find, as we pointed out last week, that the disciples had all other kinds of extracurricular things going on. Their minds were all over the place. They were arguing about who was the greatest and who would be the most honored in the kingdom. They were concerned about money and about position and about power and about things of this world. But Jesus was focused on something very different. And I can't help but think that his focus was what allowed him to be successful. What we choose to focus on determines much of the outcome of our lives. The Bible tells us this over and over again. Now, I don't know how many thoughts we have in a given day. Scientists don't agree on how many thoughts we have, but everyone agrees that we have thousands of them. And, uh, and, and there's research that's been done and a lot of fun research about thought processes. A few, uh, few months ago, Brad came in with a great bit of research, and I, I kind of went to seed on it, but talked about how many thoughts we have in a given day, and it's kind of an average. Some of, you, some of us, like me, we have far lower set of thoughts than some of you guys that are much smarter out there. But, uh, but, but here's a crazy thing about thoughts. What they figured out is that the majority of the thoughts, somewhere around 80 to 90% of the thoughts that we have in a given day are repeat thoughts. They're thoughts that we think about, and we think about again, and we think about again. They're, they're problems that our mind is mulling over, we might use that terminology, that we're working through. And so it's critically important that we stop and consider, what is it that I'm thinking about? In Paul's final article or final letter to the church in Corinth, he writes this in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, in verse number 5. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Last week, I threw out a little bit of a homework assignment for you guys, and we'll check in with you later. I don't know how many of you took me up on this. Probably some of you are like me. You meant to do the homework, and then you forgot to do the homework. But we, we said, hey, look at Philippians, and, and, and ask yourself, 
How many good and pure and, 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 and noble things are the part of the thought process that goes in our mind? Paul's building on that concept here. He says, and I want you to notice this again quickly. He says, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. When we become Christians, when we become Christ followers, it's not just a season that we go through. It's not just a period of time that we become good. It is a wholesale change of how we think. The renewing of our minds. We'll look at that verse in a moment, as we, we will probably every week. Paul said, we destroy arguments. In other words, we, we, we think life through and we figure out the kinds of arguments that we can set up that don't have any validity. We, we are constantly arguing with, our, with ourselves and with other people. But are those arguments based on truth? And Paul says, hey, we destroy every argument and every lofty, or no, simply word means prideful or proud opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, raised up against those things that are true. There's a lot of things, guys, and you and I both know this, right? There's a lot of things that sound true that aren't true. If you, if you want a great example of this, here's a great example of this. Um, you can go home this afternoon, get on your phone or whatever, and, and, and just, just YouTube flat earth, all right? Now, there are people, smart people, in this world that sincerely believe that we live in a, on a flat earth. In fact, you guys remember a few years ago, there was a, novel, a, a novice guy that built himself a rocket. You guys remember that? Shot it up, um, hurt himself pretty bad, incidentally. But he was going, his purpose for shooting that rocket was to see or to prove some flat earth theory. That, that was why he launched this rocket. And he's at it again. He's going to get him another rocket and launch another one. And I say more power to him. I mean, that's, but if you want to launch a rocket, you go ahead, right? But here's the thing, guys. There's all kinds of information available that says that we live on a sphere. But you start to watch some of the flat earth videos and you'll notice something. You'll be like, you know, that kind of makes sense. And that's kind of troubling because I know that the earth is a globe. I've gone around it and some of you guys have too. But it sounds like they might have a point. Paul said, we demolish those kinds of arguments. Guys, it really doesn't matter if you think the world's flat or round. I don't care. But when it comes to theology and it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ, it matters because the consequences are not just in this life. You know, you might get a few people to laugh at you if you think, yeah, the earth's flat. They might laugh at you, right? They might say, hey, you know a guy named Columbus? Anyway, um, they might laugh at you, but there's really no eternal consequence. When you, mess, when you miss things spiritually... It has real consequences. And then Paul says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. You know, there's a great battle, a great lie in our world today. And we, we started talking about this last week. I'm just going to build on this a moment this morning. That lie is, is that you aren't in control. That lie is, is that someone else or something else is in control of your life. 
And if you're, a, if you're an evolutionary kind of person, if you just come at it that we're here by random chance and there is no God, no creator, then, then that, that, that story is, is that you're just born with the brain that you got. You, you just are you're kind of act, exercising instinctual decisions. There's really no higher thought that it's just a kind of an illusion of higher thought. And you can read all kinds of information out about that. There's a lot of people that believe that. We are just, we are just consequences of random choices that our brains make for evolutionary causes. But that lie also extends into theology today. And that's where it bothers me the most. People who believe in God oftentimes still have this idea that we're not the ones in control. Predeterminism or predestination. That the idea that, that, that your course of life is already preset. And, and, and while you may like it or not like it, it's really largely not in your control. Guys, I want you to know something today. The Bible taken as a whole says the exact opposite. The Bible taken as a whole says, no, you are in control of your life. Now, let me pause for a moment and tell you something before we get all big-headed and say, oh, I'm in control of my life. Listen, the only reason that you are in control of your life is because God allows it. If Satan had his way, he would have crushed every single one of us long ago. If you've never read the story of Job, it's a great primer, if you will, on, on how this kind of works. And we don't understand the relationship, or if you call it that, the, the, the agreement between God and Satan. I don't know what's going on right there, and it's not important for us to know because that's between God and Satan. But we do know that in the story of Job, Job is the most blessed man in all the East. He is brilliant, and not only that, but he has been brilliantly gifted by God with many many, many things. And Satan comes in the presence of God, and God brags on Job. He said, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like him on all the earth. And, and Satan says, yeah, 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 sure. He's impressive. And why wouldn't he be? You just give him everything that he wants. Let me take his stuff, and he'll break it. While we don't like this story, and every time I read it, it troubles me inside, God said, okay. But I want you to notice a couple things. Satan couldn't just take his stuff unless God said, you can take his stuff. God is ultimately the one in complete control of the universe. There is nothing that happens in this world that is not in God's control. I don't understand sometimes why God does what he does, but he's in control of it. That is not to say, however, that we are not in control of our lives. Because God has made it abundantly clear in the story of Job and through a lot of other Bible stories that he has gifted us free will. He has gifted us the opportunity to choose for ourselves who we will serve. Job would have to make that decision ultimately after losing all of his possessions, all of his children. Ultimately, Satan would come back defeated. God wanted to check and see if Satan was out. And Satan said, no, he's just incredibly selfish. If you take away all of his health, he will break like a twig. And God said, go ahead, but you cannot kill him. He does that. He gives him, flicks him with terrible boils. He's in such a wreck that his friends just stare at him for a week. And yet Job says something that's remarkable. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job exercised his free will to praise God in the midst of mayhem. And it's not just 
Job. It's many, many others. In fact, that narrative of us making our choice is one that starts in the very beginning of Scripture. In Genesis, the fourth chapter, as Mandy has on the screen here this morning, is this moment where God is having a conversation with none other than Cain. Now, Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's two children, and, and they both bring a sacrifice to God. And, and it says in the Bible that, that Cain brings, or Abel brings a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. It was, it, was, it was a lamb, but Cain brought of the vegetables that he grew in his garden. Cain was a farmer, Abel was a, was a herdsman. And, and it says that the, his, his sacrifice was not acceptable. And I don't know concerned this morning about why it wasn't acceptable. Maybe it was because it needed to be a blood sacrifice. Maybe it was just not from his heart. I don't know. That's not the important thing. The thing is, is that God accepted Abel's sacrifice while he rejected Cain's sacrifice. And Cain is upset. He's hurt. He's frustrated. He's mad. He's indignant. And he goes away and pouts. And this text is this moment where God comes and he has a conversation with Cain. And he says, Cain, if you do well, won't you be accepted? Put plainly, Cain, if you did what I asked you to do, wouldn't I have accepted it? If you had done what I commanded, if you had approached me with the right attitude, you know I would have accepted it, right? But if you don't do well, sin is lying outside of your door ready to attack. It wants to control you. But you must master it. Cain would make a decision. A decision that I've made, a decision that you've made. We're not here to judge Cain this morning because Cain is going to do the same thing I did. Cain's going to allow that hurt. Cain's going to allow his anger. Cain's going to allow his frustration. Cain's going to allow his bitterness to brew and to boil and to cook and to seethe until he gets out in the middle of the field and he sees that nasty, no good brother that God likes better than him and he crushes his head with a rock. He buries him in the ground. Sin was at Cain's door. And God told Cain something really, really important. Guys, it's something that we need to get today too. It wants to control you. But you must master it. So how do we do that? How do we gain control over the course of our life and the processes that are going on in our minds? How do we gain control over our thoughts? Because God has given us this opportunity and God has laid this responsibility on each of us. And when we notice, we know that instinctually and we'll look at that scripturally today. How do we gain control? And I think the first thing that we must do is we've got to accept the responsibility for our mindsets. We've got to accept the responsibility for the things that we do, but most importantly, for the reasons behind those things that we do. We each have the ability to exercise control over our thoughts. And God was warning Cain in this text. He said that you're not thinking, Cain, about the right things. Cain chose to think about the wrong things. Anger and jealousy and hurt, which led to a murderous act. Plan A, I think, in this world of Satan, Satan's plan A is to keep all people from believing in God. If he could do that, he would like to. But Satan's plan B is to keep all Christians from maturing in Christ. 
If he can keep us down there in the milk, if he can just keep us as people who don't ever accept responsibility that God has given us, the opportunity that God has given us to, by his grace and mercy, master the course of our lives by mastering how we think about things, then he's got us. And we'll be forever fighting with things that that we should have been delivered from a long time ago because we've never accepted that responsibility. Brothers and sisters, we control our mindset. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. He says in Colossians 3 and verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. His point here is, is hey guys, I want you to be, I want you to be high-minded. I want you to think about things at a different level. Don't just accept the, the, the kind of the kind of mindset that everyone else around you has, think these things through. Control how you look at things. There's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is a story that's of Ruth. It's found in the book that bears her name. If you've never read Ruth, what a beautiful text. It's this story about, about a woman by the name of Naomi and her husband, Elkanah, who go to a, another country because they are experiencing famine. They go there with their two sons. Their sons come of age while in that country. They marry two Moabite girls. And then in the course of time, the husband and both of the sons die. And Naomi decides it's time for her to return home. And so she and her two daughter-in-laws embark on this journey, but somewhere in the middle of that journey, as they're nearing, as I imagine it, the boundary between Moab and, and Israel, Naomi has this conversation with her, with her daughters-in-law. She says, look, guys, you don't need to go home with me. I came here full. I'm returning empty. There's nothing here for me. There's nothing here for you. Why don't you guys just go back to your people and I'll go back to mine and we'll just agree to be miserable for the rest of our days. And one of the daughters-in-law says, you know what, it's probably the right thing to do and it may have been. She goes back home. But there's Ruth. And Ruth says, no, I'm not going that way. And she returns to a place that she's never been, to a people that aren't hers. She moves into a community that she never experienced before with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And the thing that I love about this story, guys, is here you have two women, one older and one younger, but two women with radically different mindsets. Because Naomi, which means means, uh, positive things, Naomi returns, and which means pleasant, actually, Naomi comes back and she said, don't call me Naomi no more. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi made a decision that she was going to be bitter. She made a decision that God had dealt with her bitterly because he had brought calamity in my life. That's what she says. If you're reading through the text, as she returns home, she says this. This is who I am now. I left as pleasant, sweet, godly woman. I've returned as bitter, God-forsaken woman. She went away full and she came back empty. As we read that story, we're tempted to say, Naomi, empty? Really? Naomi, you you just don't know how this story's going to end because you brought with you a young lady who doesn't look at life that way. She isn't allowing her thoughts to be controlled by the circumstances, but she demands that she is the one in control of where she goes. Think about all the things that Naomi had that she refused to see. She had a hometown to return to. There were people there who knew her and welcomed her. They were excited to see her come home. There was food in her hometown. She had left that hometown generations before because there was nothing to eat. But now it seemed like it was a time of abundance. There was plenty to go around. She returned with a woman who was committed to her welfare in Ruth. 
She got back at the beginning of the barley harvest and right before the wheat harvest. So this is a perfect time for this young gal, her young daughter-in-law, to go out and to, to reap from the edges of the field. And not only that, but she found favor with a landowner who said, leave her a bunch so they can make it through the winter. Naomi was so blessed. There were still living relatives of her husband. And so she had a possibility of a future for both of them. As you read through the end verses of the book of, of Ruth, you find out that, that, that Ruth ends up marrying a very wealthy landowner by the name of Boaz, and they have a son whose name is Jesse, that Naomi was actually going to be the great-grandma of David, who would ultimately be the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. She was a part of the most amazing story, but all she could see was bitterness and brokenness and emptiness. Thank God she had Ruth. Who said, I'm going to look at things differently. Brothers and sisters, let's take control of where we allow our minds to go. Remember what Paul said, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Are we doing that? I love how Ruth responds to Naomi. I'm going to read this quickly. He says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do to me, uh, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You know the irony of this story, and we don't have a lot of time to talk about this morning, but the most ironic thing to me about this story is that the woman who knows of God the woman who grew up in God's family, among God's people, in the place of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, is the one who is bitter. And the girl who grew up over in Moab, among people who knew nothing of God, and who, whose, whose relationship with God was estranged at best, it was this Moabite girl who chose to take control of her mindset and change her story. And her story changed Naomi's story as well. Secondly, if we're going to gain control of our life, we've got to change our mind, not just our behavior. Your mind, not just your behavior, must change. It's easy for us to modify our behavior. Say, okay, what have I got to do to, to be a Christian? Make a checklist of things. But, but when the Bible talks about becoming a Christ follower, it talks about something deeper. There's this passage in Proverbs <clears throat> Proverbs 23 and verse 7, and it's in the middle of advice to a young man who, who's going over to somebody's house, and it's just kind of a passing comment, but it's a brilliant and very, very uh, astute observation. It says, as a man thinks, so is he. As a person thinks, so they are. The way we look at the world eventually becomes the person who we are in the world. And we know that to be true, but sometimes we don't stop to think about that as much as we, sh as we should. Simply put, we are what we think. Now, that doesn't mean that if you think that you're a brilliant singer or a wonderful athlete, that you'll become that, all right? Don't take me wrong. I've thought that I was a brilliant athlete on many occasions in my life, and I nearly killed myself, all right? Um, don't think that you're a brilliant race car driver and you're not, all right? You've got to put some work into that, but we're talking, we're talking here about spiritual things, about the content of our character. We may not ever have the great motive skills to be able to run and dribble a basketball. You may not ever be a great driver, but you can be a great follower of Jesus. 
And we are called to be that. Simply put, we are what we think. You know what worries me so much about some of us sometimes as Christians, guys, is we, we think we're weak. We think we're vulnerable. We think we're broken. And we focus on those things over and over again. Now, look, it may be true that we have weaknesses. It may be true that we have vulnerabilities. You do. If you think you're standing firm, be careful. Don't fall. The Bible tells us that. We might be hurt by decisions that we made or decisions that other people made in life. But that doesn't mean we have to stay there. We are defined by the decisions that we choose to make. That is a gift that God has given us. Don't let anyone talk you out of that. The people who always seem to be more happy and upbeat and fulfilled with their lives are oftentimes the people who have taken control of their thought processes. They're the people who have stepped back and said, I'm going to make certain that my mind is changed, not just by behavior. I'm going to change how I think about things in this world. Romans, the 12th chapter and verse 2 is kind of one of those theme verses we are going through in this sermon series. And it says, allow God to transform you by the renewing of your mind, by changing your mind. That's really what God wants access to. Your body will come with your mind. But he wants control of your thought processes. There's three other things quickly as we wrap this up this morning that I think are absolutely critical if we want to gain control of our life. First of all, we've got to become, we've got to be, take responsibility for what we do. And then we've got to recognize that our thought processes change first. Then our actions change outside of that. The third thing is simply this. that We've got to think through the challenges rather than just reacting to them. Some of us are just people who are reactionary in nature. We, we tend to kind of just react to things. And it comes up and we deal with it now. It comes up and we deal with it then. But sometimes those reactions that we have are not God-centered reactions. Sometimes those reactions are, are things that we've, we've brought with us from other people that we grew up with or, or, or thought processes that we just came up with as kids because it helped us to get through a difficult period, but they're not necessarily the things that God would call us to meditate on or to think about. Psalms 119 and verse 15 is a beautiful passage in, in Psalms 119. It says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Let me just give you a quick practical on this because, because this is something that I mention a lot because this is something that's hard for me. I think it's hard for most of us so we can pick this up this morning. My reaction typically to people who are hateful to me is to return hatefulness with hatefulness, all right? That's a natural tendency for me. If I don't think it through, the immediate thing I'm going to do if someone says something ugly to me is I'm likely to say something ugly back. If somebody takes aggressive behavior towards me, I'm likely to want to take aggressive behavior back. But Jesus, Jesus told me to do something very differently. He said, if someone smote you on one cheek, that's King James for hit, all right, turn to him the other also. And that doesn't compute sometimes with my, with my, with my physical response, my knee-jerk reaction, but it's often, in fact, always the best response. So often, a gentle word can turn away wrath. Absorbing a, a hit can sometimes salvage a relationship, which is far more, than, more important. The psalmist said, I'm going to meditate on your precepts, not on my ideas, but on your ideas, God. I'm going to fix my eyes, not on my ways or the people that are hanging out, I'm hanging out with, how they deal with life. I'm going to fix my eyes on your ways, God. And that transforms how we think about this world.
The fourth thing is to confront destructive thoughts. Not to allow those things to just brood. In reality, that's what God is telling Cain way back in the very beginning of Genesis. Cain, you've got a choice right here. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to to control you, but you must master it. He's really saying to Cain, you need to decide what to get rid of and what to keep. Paul wrote it and said in Romans 12 that we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Maybe it's best understood, though, in a moment of interaction. It happens between Jesus and the apostles in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, you might remember, is that moment where Peter is just, moments before, given the great confession, right? Jesus said, and who do you say that I am? And Jesus had a low ebb in his ministry. Pretty much everyone else has taken off because Jesus began to really kind of preach hard things. He said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he wasn't talking about the flesh and blood of his life. But what he's saying is, you guys have to become like me. You can't, I'm not just ordering or giving you a formula of religion that you just go through and think, oh, I'm good now because I got, no, he said, I want you to become like me in your life. I want you to become like me in how you live and how you think and what you do. And people are like, whoa, that's pretty steep, Jesus. I think we're out of here. Jesus turns to the disciples and he said, you guys going to leave me too? And Peter brilliantly, and not always did Peter have brilliance, but once in a while, all of us come up with a good thing. And he says, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. Who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're a prophet or others. Who do you say I am? Say you're Christ, the son of the living God. And, And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, that's awesome. You didn't get that on your own. God gave that to you. That's great, Peter. And I'm on this rock. I'm gonna build my church and this truth of who I am. You guys know all that passage. And then just a little bit later, Jesus said, now I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to have to die there. And Peter said, no, 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 no. You're not going to have to die. Now, remember way back we talked about as we opened the day in in, in Luke 9 where it says, and Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And we said that, that Jesus was the only one to successfully complete his mission. The other 12 failed in a wide array of of ways. Jesus knows that his mission is to die for us. And Peter's, his good buddy, His guy that's in his corner says, oh, Jesus, you're not going to have to die. If you know this text, you know how this ends in Matthew 16, 23, or if you're reading the screen, it says, but he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, guys, this is his buddy that he just called the devil. So let me just lay this out for you really, really quickly today. This is Jesus. He's the one, the one, the one and only person who got through this life and never blew it. The one and only individual who never did something from selfish ambition or vain conceit. The one and only person who finished the race and was still running on his own power. And if Jesus deals with negativity and Jesus deals with destructive thinking like this, we should sit up and take notice. When we have sin going on in our life, guys, we got to deal with it. You got to call the devil where the devil is. Now, that's harsh. I mean, every time, first time I read, I, was, I still remember that. I look back, man, alive, have a little grace on poor old Peter right here. He just loves you, Jesus. I mean, he just, he just doesn't want you to die. That didn't matter. Jesus knew that that kind of thinking 
was going to destroy the mission. He turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't think he was calling Peter Satan. He was just pointing out where the source of that thinking was coming from. Guys, some of us have a Satan in our life right now. For some of us, it's on that phone. You wouldn't want for anybody just to pick up your phone right now and start to scroll through your search histories because Satan is on there. Some of us, it's in a relationship some of us, it's in, a, it's, in a, it's in a financial transaction. For some of us, it's in a bottle or in a, in a bag or in a, in a medicine jar. For some of us, it's a, well, it could be a million things this morning. But we have something that's tempting to cut in and keep us away from God. And guys, we've got to deal with that. Call it for what it is. If we're going to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ, you've got to recognize that some thoughts are not from Jesus. And it's not from God. It's from Satan. As we close, choose to focus on the right things. Recognize and avoid the wrong things and choose to focus on the right things. Ephesians 4 is this beautiful passage. One of these days I'm going to preach through Ephesians. It's a sermon series I've been wanting to do for a long time. And I love the book of Ephesians. It's such a constructive and building book. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, in verse 22 through 32, is a 10-verse list of things right there that, hey, if you've never read through this, there's your assignment for this week, all right? Add that to last week's homework if you didn't do it, all right? Um, take a look at your life. Do an inventory of the good influences and the bad influences in your life, but, but take some time to look at this because he starts off and he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former way of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Once again, guys, there's that word mind, our heart, our thinking. That's what God is after for us. He wants us to be changed, to be renewed in our minds. And put on a new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Think about this, what, what Paul is saying right here. This is beautiful. This is so exciting. He's saying, hey, I have this idea. You're kind of a mess. Why don't you take off the dirty clothes and put on clean clothes? Why don't you take off the filth that you created for yourself and put on something, well, something that looks like, like God? Guys, do we deserve that this morning? No. We do not deserve to even be mentioned in the same sentence with God. We don't certainly deserve to put on his character and to become like him and to be given the responsibility of sharing with the broken world around us, with everyone else who's still in a mess, that there's hope for something better. But that's exactly the gift that God's given us. He said, hey, check this out. I want you to take off your old self and I want to put on me <laughs> with your former way of life your brokenness having and he goes on to say in verse 25 I'm just condensing this he said therefore having put away falsehood take off falsehood and let each one speak truth to your neighbor because you're members of one another be angry it happens but do not sin do not let the sun go down in your anger give no opportunity for the devil let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share. Don't steal, but share. Notice how Paul goes through here and he says, this is what it means to have a different mindset. You don't do these things, but you do these things. Why? Because you're not in this world to take anymore. You're in this world to give. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. It happens to a lot of us. But only such as is good for building up and as fits the occasion 
that you might give that it may give grace to those who hear are the things that you're talking about building people up or are you tearing people down if you're tearing people down that's not what God's called you to be that's your old way of living Jesus built people up he pushed them towards a better version of who they were do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were steeled for this day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave us. (laughs) We've been forgiven this morning. Even if we blew it this week, we can come to the foot of the cross and we can say to God, God, I'm a mess. And we know the Bible tells us that God is faithful to forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we come to him with a truly repentant heart, Paul says, hey, uh, I have a formula for you. Why don't you get rid of that stinking thinking? Why don't you get rid of those thoughts and that mindset that you've carried around and has corrupted your soul for so many years? Why don't you trade it in for something that's beautiful? Stop worrying about you. Start worrying about me and the people that are around you. And you're going to be restored in how you think of this world. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing this morning. If you have a need, you know that you can come.